This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time to talk cities. Unfortunately, there is not much good to talk about. We had the horrific mass shooting at a condo in Vaughan where three of the victims were on the building's condo board and the violent swarming murder allegedly perpetrated by eight teenage girls, some as young as 13. The Ford government has quietly removed 9,000 hectares of protected land from the Greenbelt despite massive opposition during the brief public consultation period. Not to mention that the big storm, Snowmageddon, is threatening to disrupt the Christmas holiday. And now it's time to tune into the town. And I want to say that I am open to good news from any of our panelists. And I would like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, and Toronto City Councillor James Pasternak for Ward 6 York Centre. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Hi. Great to be on the show. Hi. Okay, let me begin with... Karen, there is a feeling among a lot of people that uh, this is no longer such a safe city, and we're seeing things that are completely unprecedented, like this swarming by these teenage girls who apparently met up online, and I gather for the purpose of causing havoc. I mean, what's, what's your take on that? Well, I think I think there's two issues. Uh, the first one is the issue of whether uh, there's a general sense that um, the city is no longer safe, and and I would say that that sentiment is on the rise, and it is um, certainly felt in different pockets of the city differently. And I and I say that because I received a phone call actually from the Toronto Police Services. They were doing a canvas and an opinion poll around people's perceptions of safety in the neighborhood, and it was quite a detailed uh, question. Uh, it took about 20 minutes to do the survey and probed a lot about, you know, how do you feel about your safety in your community? You know, do you feel safe at night? And, you know, sort of all the things that I, you know, I would typically take for granted but now have made me think, is the city the safe city that I take for granted? And these incidents like these, I mean, it's, it's so unbelievable to me that these girls, young girls, who didn't even know each other by all everything we understand until they, except through social media, met on a Saturday night for the sole purpose of causing mischief, and it had fatal consequences. And it, 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 does, it does beg the question about how, you know, what, what are we doing? Um, it, that, you know, again, I like to think is an isolated incident, but, but the other reality is that riding the subway feels unsafe, um, being in certain places of the city feel unsafe, and it's, it does need to be talked about. Yeah, and David Crombie, this mass shooting at a condo in Vaughan, to me, highlights a couple of things, that the court system is completely inadequate for dealing with an angry person who wants some kind of revenge, and we've seen that in other settings like domestic violence, and also, and not to compare this in any way to the murder that happened, but it also highlights that, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in our demo, want to move to condos, but you are bound to what your condo board decides, and there can be a lot of um, uh, disagreements about that. David? For sure, and, and actually, if you think about it, condo living, and therefore rules and regulations governing condos are relatively, in, in our society, relatively new. Uh, the, the Condo Act has not been around for a very long time, and it, and it needs a, a constant changing as we move more life 
into condo living. So I think one of the things that will come out of uh, the sad events uh, in Vaughan uh, will be a, a people looking again, properly so, uh, at, at how we deal with and re- resolve disputes within condos and with, between condo boards and members. That That's for sure. That will come of that. And... David, what do you think about what Karen had to say? Is it your perception that the city is less safe? Well, I don't think it's less safe. I, there's, there's more and more people here and more and more people of various backgrounds. So it's not quite the same old homogenous Toronto that I grew up in. But I don't feel it's, it's any, uh, in, in relative terms, uh, less safe. There's far more media reporting on events now uh, than, than there were before. There's a 25, 24. 24-hour news cycle that, that keeps it alive. So, and I think that people have a perception very often that it's less safe. But I, I don't know that the stats on, on a percentage term, on percentage basis, would, would back that up. Let's bring in James Pasternak. I'm, you're a sitting councillor. And uh, again, something like this swarming is completely unprecedented, though it's pretty clear that uh, the the vulnerable people, uh, like the victim here, who was uh, a homeless person, are targeted. Yeah, the whole these two incidents have have really shaken uh, the, the GTA and, and Toronto and Bond. Um, you know, with the condo with, with the condo killing, I mean, you just zero in on mental health and the lack of resources we're putting into it, gun control and and the smuggling of guns, and of course, as it's been touched on, is is condominium governance as our vertical as vertical living uh, increases throughout the city, and unless we're going to address all three of those, these problems are going to continue. The perception uh, that that it's no longer a safe city, the statistics don't bear that out. It's still, with almost 3 million people, um, it's an extremely safe city for, for a city of this size. Um, this, uh, this tragic uh, death and murder of this homeless person was the 68th murder of the year. Now, while every murder is tragic, there are many uh, cities in the United States that would beg for that kind of uh, murder rate uh, per per hundred thousand. Well, wait um, a minute. Isn't that high for Toronto? No, I mean you you've had uh, you've had years in the past. I mean there is some, another week to go in the year, but there there have been years in the past where we've hit uh, eighty five, uh, seventy five, um, sixty eight uh, with a city that's growing this fast. Um, as I said, uh, you compare that to uh, you know cities like uh, you know Chicago and New York, uh, you know or LA. Uh, we we remain an extremely safe city. You, you know that's one of my questions is because people are on social media, we get so much news from the states. Could there be any aspect of social contagion here that we see all these things happening south of the border that uh, basically would have been unthinkable here? Do you think that might be a factor, David? Yeah, I do. Uh, And and I think it's worth remembering, again, that uh, social media is so new to us as, as as a social phenomenon that we're not we're not clear in any any significant way about its dimensions in terms of affecting mental and social uh, health. So uh, I, I think that you're going to find more and more scrutiny going into social media. And that social media is not simply coming from the states, although that's part of it, but it's, it's within, within us. And we've got a new generation being raised with, it, with social media. So its consequences and the, and, and the relationship between uh, young people now being much determined by what happens in social media, it really is important for us to understand its dimensions and what kind of rules and regulations need to be established. Any new technology requires some new, some renewal and a, a, a rethinking uh, of, of uh, what rules and regulations should apply. There are some people who think that, that new media doesn't require regulation. It does. And it's a question of what's the best way to go about it. Karen, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing, and uh, I I think uh, Councillor Pasternak just mentioned, uh, in regards to the condo shooting, is mental health. Uh, 
my feeling is that whenever violent things happen, yes, I'm not negating the possibility of mental health, but people seem to be really anxious to label it mental health as opposed to evil. Um, And, you know, because most people with mental health, even severe mental health, are not violent. Um, Do you think that that's a problem? I mean, I see uh, in certain anti-Semitic incidents, they say, oh, mental health. Uh, And here with the the condo uh, perpetrator who was killed in the thing, his family came out and said that he was a violent person. And there may have been a mental health aspect, but, uh, you know, what do you think? Well, yeah, I agree with you because there is, um, you know, there's a stigma of mental health already, and you don't want to add to that stigma by linking mental health to violence, um, particularly this type of violence. Like this, this is an extreme level of violence in and of itself that can't be blamed on mental illness. This is this is an issue of a man who was violent, who had a history of violence. To your point, had his family be estranged from him because they felt they needed to for their own um, personal safety. And, you know, it does beg the question, how on earth did this man get a gun um, with his history of violence? And it is it is certainly a challenge because, you, you, well, you know, while people who commit these crimes may have may have mental illness, it's not everyone with mental illness is going to commit these crimes, right? So you, you always want to be careful in terms of how we talk about this. Um, but, but the reality is that he was a very violent man, uh, irrespective of his mental illness, or maybe because of it, I don't know. But... You know, he, he, he resisted attempts for treatment, for help, and, you know, from his family was not pleasant to be around to the point they couldn't be around him anymore. And here he is living in a condo, torturing the condo board and other residents. And, you know, the, the board is powerless to do anything because he's a, he's a property owner. Right, and, and, and the courts yeah. appear to be powerless as well. Uh, James Pasternak, are we too quick to uh, dismiss things as mental illness? I think, you know, it's easier for people to wrap their heads around that. Well, I don't, I don't think, um, I think there's a number of things, and I listed them off, that, that have, um, that have uh, come to the fore in this. It's certainly gun control, and, and, and Karen mentioned in passing, how on earth did this guy get a gun uh and was it uh, was it smuggled was it bought legally was it stolen uh we, we just don't know they haven't really released any any information the condominium governance is broken i knock on hundreds of doors and condominium towers and i don't know what they think i can solve their internal disputes but but there must be a better way to solve uh, some of their disputes and what are the true. nature of most disputes that you come across in a condo? Well, a lot of it, a lot of it centers around finances, yeah. and spending, and they can't. They 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 run into enormous resistance when they raise uh, the condo fees to pay for state of good repair. And then what happens is uh, the the owners resist, and then the repairs get worse and worse over time. And and then you then you get like a surfside which is the extreme example. Well, exactly. I was going to bring that up, the, the horrific condo collapse in, in Miami, and, and uh, that is uh, the worst possible outcome from delaying keeping a condo repaired. But, but again, especially as we see older people moving into condos and there are condo fees on top of the purchase price monthly uh, fees, so it's understandable why they would... Uh, resist increases because they might be on fixed incomes and we have all these disputes. Yeah, that's right. And and that's something people should be very aware of when they move into a condominium, that they're living in a little village of of hundreds of units and and different personalities and that it has to be solved kind of in a collaborative, collaborative way. And that's not always easy. I mean, when it comes to the courts, um, I mean, I've always advocated for criminal justice reform. One of the most common comment that police officers make to me when we're, we're pressing them for more patrols and, 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 and more cracking down on, let's say, stolen cars, is they say, you know, we arrest these people and they're out the next morning. So my response to that is, okay, well, well, arrest them. Let them feel what it's like to spend a night in jail. They'll have to appear in court. They could be fined or given a prison sentence. But let's not let them 
you know, you know, just just walk away because of this, because the court system is failing. But but the the you need both. You need police reform, and you also need criminal justice reform. And and, and, and that's money, above my pay grade. Public that's money. Provincial. You need public money to clear those court backlogs. David, do you see some kind of fundamental change in people's attitudes here? Uh, I don't think it's a change in people's attitudes. I I, I think probably uh, on a couple of things, and James has already touched on them, um, the, 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 the connection between mental health and access to uh, to instruments of violence is, 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 a, is a part of, obviously a part of this. And so we have to, again, go back at the issue of gun control, which has bedeviled this country uh, for a variety of reasons, which we can go to another time. But it's, it's not one that's been well solved uh, for, for large urban areas. So gun control is one. There's, there's also no doubt that we, the, the, looking at the condo legislation is going to be vital because we're not just housing people in condos. Now we're putting in social services, other kinds of uh, community activities. And so, therefore, the condo legislation in dealing with internal matters it really requires uh, a renewal and a, and a hard look at how best we can now go about it as we expand the definition of what condo, condo living is about. Right. Well, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, statistics versus perception. And, uh, the, the, you know, the bottom line is that a lot of people feel less safe than they did. And I'm not sure how to address that, Karen. Well, you know, I, I, certainly I can tell you my experience. I mean, I live at Young and Eglinton and I hop on the subway and there's a person who's, you know, made a, a bed for themselves in the station and then I take the subway downtown and there's a gentleman with a crack pipe who uh, drops it on the subway as it's moving and behaves quite erratically and then I get off the subway and I go past the park and there's people sleeping in the park and I can tell you that undermines my sense of safety. I'm not going to lie. You know, you look around everywhere and you see people in need or people in distress or people acting erratically or however it is and you're like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go back home because this is every, it's everywhere around us. And, and, and I'm not to suggest that all those people are violent, but it certainly doesn't create a sense of safety. Well, I, you know, the last time I, I went to the Eaton Center and I parked in a Green Pea, a city parking lot close by, and when I came back to retrieve my car, what I found was really distressing. Uh, people doing drugs in the, you know, in the sheltered part where the elevator was. And when I got downstairs, there was a guy doing God knows what. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty scary. And there doesn't seem to be, and for, um, perhaps Councillor Pasternak is closer to this because of the police response. But, you know, I guess the sense of, well, why bother? Well, you kind of need to bother because people do live here. And if, if you don't feel safe, and it's also not safe for people to be sleeping in parks. And it's not safe to be sleeping in a subway station. And so we need to be able to start having these conversations around, you know, what are we going to do to help provide a safe environment for all of us? Okay, let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. I'd, um, I call in tomorrow, but um, with, I gotta drive to Ottawa tomorrow in the middle of the day, and I don't know whether I'm gonna be able to get a signal from Peterborough up to Ottawa on Highway 7 or not. But what I'm distressed about especially is these eight teenage, young teenage girls, not just teenage girls, young teenage girls, um, murdering and having, causing mayhem in that part of Toronto. And what I'm not understanding is where are the parents in all of this? Uh, I couldn't tell you. Well, I mean, Libby, I don't know about you. When I grew up, um, even at 16 years of age, I was expected to be in the house by 10 or 10.30 at night. This is 11 o'clock or 11.30, and these maybe girls that aren't really that much friends, they're all out there at this time of night. I don't understand where um, do the parents not have any control of, the, of their kids anymore. Well, a, a lot of us don't understand, Ron, so uh, what can I tell you? This, this 
uh, I don't know what to call it, incident, uh, is so unprecedented and so shocking that, you know, we we just don't know what to do with it, and except for hope that it's some kind of isolated incident. But I, I, I don't know what to think about it beyond that. But uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're, we're heading towards the end of our half hour, and we are going into Christmas, and I would hope to talk about some nicer things. Can can anybody chime in with something good happening as we head into the holiday? Sure. Well, well I'm not okay. Okay. Who was well. first there? <laughs> was I'll that wait. David? Yeah, that's David here. But yes. I'll wait. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, Christmas time for most people, uh, if they're lucky, is a time when they uh, when, when families get together in some way. And so I know in my own household, we got got grandkids coming from parts of Europe where they now live. There are parts of North America where they now live. The family will come together. It doesn't come together like they used to years ago. But everybody finds a way, tries to find a way uh, that uh, they, they get together for Christmas. That's always a happy occasion. The weather, by the way, is not very helpful this year. No, I was going to ask you. I hate to be uh, a, a downer, but are you worried that that the weather might interrupt I, I, some I, of those I have plans? A uh, who lives in Oslo, Norway, and she came in last night. Yay! Uh, and but I also have a a, uh, a grandson who lives in Amsterdam, and he's coming in tomorrow night. Uh oh, that's, that's just an example. But I, I, I would wouldn't want to upset a point, and that is take the happiness as it comes. And at Christmas time, at least people try and get their families together and, and act well. That's right. And it's been a few years since we have the whole big gatherings. Uh, Karen? Oh, I was going to say, I, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't follow the Leafs a lot, but I understand they're having a pretty good season and they're playing today. <laughs> so there might be some good news on that front. <laughs> and and uh, what oh, about Christmas? Uh, Christmas, yeah. Christmas is going to be pretty quiet uh, with my close family. And, um, of course, it'll be the first Christmas without my dad. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, Karen. I don't want to bring it down. I don't want to bring it down. <laughs> it is a time for family. You know, that's and, um, that, that, that's a, a, a whole other thing is, is a first Christmas after you lose someone. Uh, so uh, certainly in that, we definitely... Wish you the best. Uh, James, uh, what about you? I bet that a lot of your constituents maybe do not celebrate Christmas, but are no, in the holiday uh, spirit already. You're, you're absolutely right. We've been celebrating uh, Hanukkah all week, and uh, it's been absolutely marvelous. Uh, I was at Toronto Police Headquarters where we did a uh, menorah lighting. We've been at various parks. Um, and uh, it's, it's really wonderful because we've been joined by people of all faiths to to join in the in the holiday of Hanukkah, and what's also uh, nice this year is the pandemic is uh, becoming a distant memory, and to reunite um, family and friends um, in a more comfortable environment without uh, without the fear of uh, COVID uh, has been a great relief to to everybody, uh, oh. and um, and and I can see it I can see it in their faces in their eyes in their tone. And I could see it around the council chamber uh, as well. Just a, 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 a growing glow of reuniting a family of friends. I, I, I did a double take turning around because the tiny little menorah that I, I have here in the background of my shot, we forgot to update it with one more candle this morning. And uh, the nice thing about Hanukkah, which, by the way, people, is a minor holiday other, I think, than its uh, proximity to Christmas, though in Israel it's, uh, it's quite robust. Uh, so when I grew up, it was a fairly minor holiday, uh, is that it, it's become kind of mainstream, and, and everybody wishes me a happy Hanukkah, and it, people know about it, so that's a really nice thing about living in such a diverse city, uh, James. So Yes, yes no, it's, it, it has been wonderful, and, and, and um, you know, people recognize, uh, you know, the, 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 the international symbol, the universal symbol of lighting of the, the menorah, and it's light over darkness, hope over fear, and those key themes that keep us going. 
Okay, I am going to go around the virtual table and uh, get your thoughts as we head in uh, before the new year, beginning with Karen. My virtual thoughts going into the new year? Yeah, your, <laughs> your real thoughts in the virtual table. My, <laughs> my We're going around the virtual table. table. The thoughts are real. <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm like James, I'm hopeful. Uh, for 2023, I think that the worst of the pandemic is behind us. And um, although we have some challenges, I think our ability to come together will be the defining aspect of 2023. James? You know, I was really inspired by our first couple of council meetings where uh, the new councillors are, are really making a contribution uh, to, to our city and to the dialogue. And, and everyone was friendly and, and, and civil. And, and it was just wonderful to see everyone working together for, for a better city. On the personal front, uh, with the removal of travel restrictions, I look forward to seeing my grandchildren, who neither of which live in the city more often, and of course, um, you know, spending spending more more time with family. So I'm eternally optimistic, and I look forward to a wonderful 2023. David, last word to you. Well, I'm I'm always always an optimist, and and, and continue to be so. Both for the city, the city still is is just a remarkable place to live. And as we were talking about earlier, people will come together over Christmas and New Year's Eve, celebrating uh, whatever it might be, whether it's Hanukkah or New Year's Eve or Christmas time. Bringing people together is really important because the, the longer you live, the more you understand that, uh, that if you can touch human beings one another, one at a time, that's what, that's what you can hope for best. And that's what you, if you expect it, you'll get it. Okay. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to all of you. Uh, I so appreciate your participation and look forward to more of the same in the new year. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, James Pasternak, and David Crombie. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Take care. Thank you. Okay going to take a break and when we come back uh, the national institute on aging has a new survey out we'll talk about that and how people feel as they are getting older when we return you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with libby Snymer on zoomer radio welcome back A new National Institute on Aging survey reveals that most Canadians aged 50 and older have a positive outlook on their future growing older in this country. However, those who have health or financial challenges are more concerned about what the future holds. What do you think of that? What are your feelings about getting older here in uh, the GTA or the rest of Ontario, Canada? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now we are going to Dr. Samir Sinha, who is the Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and University Health Network, and uh, also the Head Health Policy Researcher at the National Institute on Aging. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Libby. Well, uh, you know, when I see the kind of headlines on this and is so positive, uh, I feel pretty good about that. Well, you should, right? I mean, it's the holiday season. We're trying to, um, you know, uh, end a, a challenging year with some some good news. And and I think that the nice news as we get together is is thinking about how many of us, as we age, are 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 aging well. Um, and especially some of our older people, they they're some of our most socially connected um, and well supported individuals in our country, which is terrific. But it also makes us think about those who um, who maybe struggling and and areas that we can do better in as well. So in terms of struggling, is it it people with uh, health or mental health issues and financial issues? 
That's exactly it. I mean, it's what it, what comes to mind is that in order to age well, we know that we have to think about our financial security overall. And those who have lower incomes, those who may not have saved uh, as well as they could have, uh, are are ones who are less likely going to have those options to be able to stay healthy and independent and 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 live uh, the rest of their years in the way they want to. So we know that we have to think about the importance of supporting people uh, to be able. To to have a secure uh, income and, and, and financial security in their later years, but also helping people stay healthy and well, because we know that if we are struggling with more chronic diseases or other issues, uh, that can make it hard for us to, again, stay healthy um, and be able to enjoy uh, living a healthy and active life for as long as possible. So that's, it reminds us kind of that these are the folks who are struggling and it makes sense why they would, but also reminding ourselves that we can prevent some of these challenges from happening in the first place. Uh, one of the interesting findings was that <clears throat> people over 80 uh, had seemed to have more well-being than a younger cohort of 50 to 79. Now, I know that in actuarial terms, right, uh, it's often the case that the longer you live, the longer you're expected to live. So if you've avoided the main things that kill people, like cancer and heart attacks, uh, then you're, you're likely to live a long time. Is that what that finding is about, really? Uh, the findings about a few different things. So one is definitely uh, we know that as we age, for those who might have uh, issues such as uh, lung or or heart issues, uh, those are things that can that can that can claim us at an earlier age. And so people who are aging in uh, later in life, for example, are, are folks who may have escaped some of those issues. But we know that uh, as we get older, when we're living in our 80s or 90s, uh, there's a good likelihood that we might be living with dementia as well so it's it's not just that issue I think what the, I think what we were finding with this with this piece was more about how uh, after you've lived a long life uh, and you've kind of maybe raised a family uh, you've had a career you've had those things um, you kind of are more confident about who you are you know what you like you know what you don't uh, you you don't have to impress anybody at work anymore um, you uh, and you can be more secure about who you are and who you you want to be. And I think that's where we're seeing that folks may not have big social networks. They may have outlived some family members or friends, but they're making sure that the networks they do have are quality networks and that they're staying uh, and they're very happy with the social connections they do have. At the same time, we found that uh, many older adults, about 40% of older Canadians, are at risk of social isolation. And so it reminds us that when, as our networks start to diminish as we get older, it's important to keep renewing them and growing them because if we lose some of those few, few people who are really important in our lives, it can put us at risk socially, but it also can make it hard for us to stay healthy and independent as well. Yeah, it's a it's a big risk. I want to talk about your findings on ageism. A lot of people characterize it as the last acceptable uh, form of discrimination. I'm not sure I agree with that. There are a few of them, but ageism is pervasive, is certainly pervasive in the workplace. Uh, it's, I mean, even if, you know, older people walk into a store and uh, some clerk sort of starts calling them dear, dearie, uh, and also in healthcare. Yes, and 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 I think thank you for picking up on this because this is something that we wanted to get a deeper understanding about because we 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 know that ageism, as you said, other isms are still significant issues, especially when they intersect. Because you can imagine that you know we talk about not only being ageist but you know racist, but also being ableist. Um, you know, there's so many ways in which we can discriminate against other people, and just on the basis of age, we see that 31 percent of older Canadians tell us that they've been experiencing ageism. Now, for the younger cohort, for people um, in their 50s if, and, and older um, who are still in the workplace, they note that the, the most likely place that they're going to experience ageism is in the workplace. But for those who are 80 and older, we found that uh, the most likely place that they're experiencing ageism is in healthcare settings. And these, these are two important 
things to think about because we know that right now one of the biggest reasons we're having labor shortages is that a lot of people have just chosen to take early retirement or they've just said, forget it. You know, I don't need to work anymore and I don't want to work anymore. I'm going to retire early. And partly that might be driven by the fact that if you're not being well-respected because of your age, if you're not being treated well, then it's not really a reason why folks are going to stay on in these environments. And right now people are saying, why can't we get older people to stay longer in our settings? It may be because we're being ageist to them in those settings uh, in some cases. The other aspect is that when we think about uh, as we get older, we're more likely to have healthcare needs and be in healthcare settings. But if people are, if older people are experiencing ageism, they're being dismissed because of their age. They're being told, and you know, as you said, you know, dearie or sweetheart or honey, hey, you know why your hip hurts? It's because you're old. As opposed to maybe you have arthritis and maybe there's something we can do about it. I think those sorts of comments and the, those those attitudes are suddenly still pervasive in many healthcare settings. And I think that can really be dismissive and put off and actually cause people um, to have poor health outcomes as well. So really what we were identifying was that ageism is a still a significant issue and one that we need to better address if we're going to um, help people stay in the workforce longer and also making sure that people get the health care they need. Do you believe that the ageism in healthcare extends to a rationing of care where people who are older will not get certain treatments? I mean, I know of people, even in their 90s, getting hip replacements and stuff uh, because they were deemed healthy enough. But do you think that, especially now when we're in such crisis, that, that there's anything of that going on? Absolutely. You know, sadly, I see it a lot with patients that I see where they tell me that, um, you know, a lot of older patients will say, I've been told that this isn't an issue because I'm old. And they said, I'm happy to accept that if that's the case, but could there be something else going on? And I'm like, actually, no, this is this is not because you're old. This is actually not a normal part of aging. This is actually something that actually can be diagnosed, can be treated, and, and we can figure that out. And when people are dismissed because of their age, when they're when when people just say, "Look, you know, they don't have many years left ahead of them. Why should we bother doing X or Y?" or they might not benefit, and people don't understand the data, they don't understand that these folks could particularly benefit from treatment um, despite their age. Uh, that's where we actually see people not getting the right access to healthcare and the supports they need. So I. I Sadly, I have to say that I still see, unfortunately, a lot of ageism happening. And a lot of what I do is at times subtly argue with my colleagues to say, actually, don't look at their age, look at this individual, and this is why I think they would actually benefit from treatment. And sometimes it's even convincing my older patients that, yes, you're 95, but you know <laughs> what? You would still benefit from getting a knee replacement because I think you've got another five to 10 years to go. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You mentioned dementia, and again, I'm looking at the clock, and I don't really want to end on a downer, but uh, uh, are we doing enough to put in place uh, a dementia strategy? There are going to be more and more people with dementia. Are we sitting on our hands or not able to come to agreements? What's your take? We've got to do more. So we, we developed a dementia strategy. I helped develop the Ontario Dementia Strategy back in 2017. Unfortunately, um, our current government has not uh, progressed that strategy and, and fully implemented it. Uh, we have a national dementia strategy that doesn't have a lot of teeth. So we've got a lot of good ideas out there. We need to do more to implement it because, as you noted, more of us are going to be living with this. But the good news is there's things that we can do to help prevent dementia and uh, and uh, and to keep our brains healthy. So there's stuff that we can do, and the sooner we get on and do it and help people age healthy and well, uh, the more of us can expect to live uh, a longer and healthier life. Okay, last 30 seconds max. On a good note, aging in place are more people putting in motion what they need to be able to age in place. Absolutely. I think more people are thinking about how they can age really well. Um, and our goal at the National Institute on Aging is helping people get the right tools in front of them and uh, so they can do that. Okay. Um, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Dr. Samir Sinha, thank you so much. Happy holidays, Libby. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, another break. And when we come back, uh, did you watch 
Volodymyr Zelensky's speech. So inspiring. We'll talk about that and other developments in the U.S. when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Excuse me. It was a truly inspirational moment as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint session of the U.S. Congress last night. If Russian missiles attack us, we'll do our best to protect ourselves. If they attack us with Iranian drones and our people will have to go to bomb shelters on Christmas Eve, Ukrainians will still sit down at the holiday table and cheer up each other. Well, will this speech do the job it was intended for to shore up support among Republicans as they prepare to take over as the majority party in the House? And Donald Trump's tax returns are being released. Is there any fallout from that? I'd like to welcome Larry Haas, a former White House communications strategist who is a senior fellow fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and a public affairs consultant. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here, Libby. So uh, the speech yesterday, uh, what did you make of it? Well, the speech and Zelensky in general, right from the start, has been nothing short of Churchillian. I mean, this is the uh, uh, the only land war we have had in Europe since World War II. And uh, Vladimir Putin is clearly trying to upset all of the norms of the international system and resurrect as much of the Soviet, the previous Soviet empire, as he possibly can. And this is one of those real inflection moments in history. And so far, so good. Uh, The Ukrainians have fought bravely, and the United States has led a coalition of the West that's been rock solid. And I think you saw that reflected last night. It was partly to thank uh, President Biden and the American people, and more broadly the West, and partly to, as you say in your introduction, uh, you know, uh, convince people who are maybe tiring, some fence-sitters, certainly the isolationist um, sentiments uh, within the House Republican caucus that are significant. Uh, I don't know that they're in the majority, but they're significant. So last night's speech had a purpose to it, but Zelensky is really inspiring. Do you think that it convinced those who are, as you say, isolationist and not wanting to continue it with the level of support that the U.S. has well, been offering? Well, I would, let me say two things about that. First of all, there is, there is a certain element uh, that is hardcore isolationist that he simply isn't going to convince. But that's not really the issue. It's really those who are being pulled in different directions. The politics are uh, pulling them toward isolationism because of the base of the Republican support, the very activist base. But yet they know in their hearts that there's something more important here. Uh, And they really need kind of a public reason to, you know, fly, you know, straight into the headwinds and take courageous votes and continue to provide uh, the aid. I, I think it was pretty effective. Uh, when you talk to Democrats who are talking privately to Republicans, they said that they were encouraged by what they're hearing. And even the House majority, uh, incoming House Speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, he's not saying no more aid. He's saying we're going to scrutinize every dollar of it. Well, that's okay. We should scrutinize every dollar of it. So Biden's going to have more of a challenge in getting the aid. But actually, with the Senate Republicans being pretty rock solid behind it, uh, I think this aid is going to continue. Maybe a little bit tougher for Biden to get, but I I think the support is going to stay here uh, in the United States. And I think we're going to be strong supporters uh, over the course of the next two years. And do you, do you think that uh, it might 
the you know the increased scrutiny or pushback will mean that the aid is not delivered in perhaps as timely a way as it needs to be. Well, as I said, there could be some bumps. Uh, there could be some hurdles. Uh, it could there could be some delays for you know uh, public hearings, maybe more than we've been having. But you know, keep in mind uh, we had uh, we we had some uh, scrutiny. Uh, even in the run-up uh, and during the course of uh, World War II, uh, in a Senate committee uh, led by Harry Truman, of all people, uh, who was investigating war profiteering. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, the money didn't come to support everything we needed to do, but it was scrutinized. And in the end, the aid was provided more efficiently. So I... I could envision some bumps, but yet at the same time, I could envision some useful work. So I, I'm, I'm not ready to be pessimistic about this yet. I think the consensus is going to hold, and I think we're going to continue to lead this solid coalition of Western nations opposing Vladimir Putin. And what do you, th- do you think that the Ukrainians can keep holding out? in this way, and Vladimir Putin is getting uh, increasingly bellicose and threatening retaliation if uh, Patriot missiles are supplied, all of that. Uh, is, is this bluster on his part, or, you know, what, what would you predict? Well, well, let me take these separately. First of all, on the bluster point, he's been blustering since day one. Uh, it was many months ago that there were hints of the use of nuclear weapons. So I don't see this as a ramp up of bluster. I mean, we, we have seen these eruptions from Vladimir Putin, a lot of threats and all the rest. But the fact of the matter is, to your first question about, you know, can the Ukrainians hold on? Look, they are they have fought from day one valiantly, valiantly. They have defied all the odds. And I have spoken recently to people who have Ukrainian officials who are visiting the United States, as well as U.S. officials who have been over in Ukraine. And I have to tell you that to a person, they are saying that the morale is rock solid, that while people are suffering, they do not want any hints of compromise, any hints of surrender. They feel this is where they need to take their stand. And uh, while Putin is, you know, targeting critical infrastructure and making it difficult for people to, you know, get heat and electricity and all the rest, the Ukrainians are repairing the infrastructure as quickly as they can. Uh, We are ramping up our support uh, with the Patriot missiles and other air defense, uh, increasingly aggressive offensive um, uh, weaponry as well. And I actually have great confidence that the Ukraine and the more importantly, the Ukrainians have great confidence that they're going to continue to make headway. And Vladimir Putin, one way or another, is going to be uh, defeated. His domestic support is declining. And I just would not be surprised to see tumult at some point in Moscow, whether through a coup or some other mechanism that threatens his rule. Hmm. Uh, moving right along uh, in our last couple of minutes, uh, the Trump tax returns. Any fallout from that? I mean, we saw we are seeing that he lied about one thing persistently. He said he couldn't release his tax returns because he was being audited. And it turns out he was not being audited. Yes. And of all the things that we have learned, I will say the contents of his tax returns are not surprisingly, uh, not surprising. Uh, we know he paid very little tax. We've already seen reports of that. So we're not surprised by that. We know that he has taken questionable deductions. We're not surprised by that. We know that he is not the businessman that he proclaims to be because he has great business losses and his income is actually from investment income. But I think what we have seen, and it's really the heart of the matter going forward, is Why did the IRS defy its own policy and not audit Trump's tax returns for the first two years? And why did they begin to only audit presidential tax returns on the very day? 
but the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Richard Neal, asked for Trump's tax returns. So there were a lot of questions. Was the IRS under political pressure? Did they, you know, did they fear retribution? Did they think with somebody like Donald Trump it just wasn't worth the effort? Um, they defied their own policy, well-established policy. So I think that's where the long-term fallout is going to be. Why did the IRS act this way? What was the White House doing at the time? Was there political pressure uh, and all the rest? I, I think that's, that's the issue going forward rather than the contents of Donald Trump's tax reform, uh, returns, because I don't think they have shown anything that we haven't already known. So where does this leave Donald Trump? We know that a lot of people uh, or some people are abandoning him, but he still has diehard followers. Uh, what is your assessment of where he's at and the possibility of, of him gaining the Republican nomination and getting back in there? Well, there's really very much of a drip, drip, drip going on. And we are seeing it show, uh, um, showing up in the polls. You're absolutely right, Libby. There is a hardcore group of uh, supporters of the Republican base that stick with him. But, you know, that hardcore used to be 40%. And then it was 35%. It's closer to 30% now. And more importantly, a strong majority of Republicans either do not want Trump to run at all or want someone else to be the Republican nominee. And that is a real sea change from where we were a year or two ago. So I think he's going to continue um, to see his support kind of drip, drip, drip away. He'll maintain some hardcore base. But um, every day is another dagger. Uh, at the heart of his political support. So um, I wouldn't want to be in his position because everything is moving in the wrong direction, whether it's the returns or the investigations or the January 6th report or the special counsel or the referrals to the Justice Department or all the rest. Okay, on that note, we wrap things up. Larry Haas, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and the same to you, Libby. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And, of course, that's the day we talk about what you want to talk about. And hopefully there is some good news in between all the bad. And you can listen to us if you're hunkered down, if Snowmageddon materializes in your area. We will be here and we'll talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.